David Zoll, who is a pastor in Christ Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, recently published a book called Seculosity with the subtitle, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. In the book, he makes this simple case, and I think he's right here. He says, bombarded with poll results about declining levels of church attendance and belief in God, we assume that more and more people are abandoning faith and making their own meaning. What these polls tell us is that confidence in the religious narratives that we've inherited has collapsed. But what they fail to report is that the marketplace and replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded in the midst of secularization so much as migrated. And we've got the anxiety to prove it. We're seldom not in church. So what Zoll is suggesting is that although fewer Americans are going to traditional church services, like the one we're having this morning, we are just as religious, if not more so, than we have ever been before. But now, what the case he makes in this book is that we're religious, maybe not about traditionally religious things, about God and humanity and, the, and what we're doing here and where we're going, but we're religious about secular things. Zoll takes the idea of secularity and religiosity and combines this into a clever new word, seculosity, where we're religious about secular things. And so that's why in our culture, people could be totally apathetic about coming and worshiping in a church, but they'll cut your head off based on who you vote for. We will spend all of our time watching the news and letting that teach us how to be human and we'll spend no time reading the Scriptures. We will be the greatest evangelists for whatever company we like or whatever neighborhood community thing we like, whatever movie or TV or book or restaurant we like. We'll spend all that time arguing online but we care nothing about coming together to pray. We have taken the creation and we have made it in the place of our Creator. We are just as religious as a country as we've ever been, but our religiosity is, is put towards all of these worldly things. And that's a serious problem for the 21st century world. But it isn't just a new or modern problem. The book of Colossians that we're beginning our sermon series in from now through the end of the fall, Paul is dealing with some of the same stuff that we're dealing with in our society today. And so the book of Colossians is, is all about the Apostle Paul reaching out to this small congregation, not unlike ours, that's off the beaten path. It's in Colossae, it's a small and overlooked and to a lot of people unimportant town, just like a lot of people think Lilburn, Georgia might be. And he is writing them to, to tell them, 
to see and to experience no one else or nothing else but Jesus as the ultimate center of their human life. In the midst of temptation to be to experience seculosity, to be religious about uh, the marketplace, to be religious about uh, politics, to be religious about the culture. He's saying forget all that stuff and make Jesus the center of your life. And He does this by helping them make sense of the challenges they're experiencing. Because like us, they're getting bombarded from every side to defect away from their faith and worship something else. See, they're getting hit from both secular culture and religious institutions alike. In particular, they're being influenced by Gentile paganism and Jewish legalism. You see, it wasn't that the Colossians weren't Christians. They were actually excelling in things that Paul commends as the the utmost virtues of the Christian faith. They were excelling in things like faith and love and hope. But the problem was they were being tempted away from the Christian faith, from the good news of Jesus Christ, to one of two things. To mixing with their Christianity a sort of pagan polytheism, meaning adding other gods in with Jesus. Or, that's, that's one thing they were being tempted with from more of the, the secular and, and, and Greek and Roman side of things. But on the Jewish side of things, they were being told that they need to be stricter about their observance of Old Testament laws. They need to be better than the Pharisees, even. And so these are the pitfalls that this church is facing. That they need to become either more... Um, worldly and pagan, or they need to become hyper-religious. And Paul says to both of those things, no. Because the problem is, they, those things decenter the Christian attention on Jesus and His Gospel and substitute it with something else. But subtle things. You know, you can still worship Jesus. Some of our friends in the developing world that are more around polytheistic religions, Sam Thomas will tell you that a lot of people really in India don't have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is a great guy. They like Jesus. He might even be divine. But Jesus is just one of many. He's not the center. He's just another addition. In our own world today, we may not face that in a traditional sense, but we may face that in the sense of Yeah, go to church, believe in Jesus, but where your real heart is and and how your stock portfolio is doing. If you can get into the most exclusive clubs, if your neighborhood is is all gated and nice and clean and keeps out the riffraff, that's where our hearts are tempted to be. Yeah, Jesus is fine, you do that on Sunday, but these things really are what motivate you. There's that, and that's a, that's a problem in our world. But on the other hand, the, the, the equally and maybe more insidious problem is to, is to look at Jesus not as a, as a Savior, but this angry deity that you have to appease by wearing nice suits to church, by not ever using any foul language when you get cut off in traffic, by not watching Hollywood movies, by not drinking and dancing and all the stuff that our Baptist forebearers, at least in the 20th century, 
like to put in the place of primacy. So as long as we're polite enough and put together enough and don't admit we're sinners enough and we go to church and we, uh, we're, we're a part of the worship team and we give our tithe, then that means that we've warded off the anger of God and that is what our religion is all about. But Paul says that is equally false. That's more probably a temptation to us nice, well-put-together evangelicals. Giving into the extremes of paganism or polytheism or legalism is a real problem. And the problem is because it fails to grasp who Jesus is and what He's done and who He's made us to be. And so, in our world of quote-unquote seculosity, where everything has become the, the, the top-tier religious piety, we need to hear the good news that frees us from all those expectations. And so let's just go ahead and dive into Paul's letter this morning, looking at these first two verses. Now, it's worth mentioning that Paul has never been to Colossae, which is kind of interesting. You know, it's a small town. It's in the southwestern part of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, where um, David and me son Grazer had just furloughed from. So, but it's, it's, it's off the beaten path. It's not in the, the route of any major trade routes or port cities or anything like that. And so he's never been. Paul tried to hit these you know, sort of big hubs and let it spread outward. And we can see how his going to a place like Ephesus, which is a coastal city that's got connections to Colossae down the road, how this strategy was working. Because he's only heard about the church of Colossae and has never been there. And he's heard about them because he's heard about them from this person we just heard read about, their pastor, a fellow missionary named Epaphras. Now some people say Epaphras, 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 however you want to say it. But Paul commends him at the beginning of this letter. But who is that? We may have forgotten. Well, truthfully, we just don't know a whole lot about his life story other than him being mentioned at the beginning and end of Colossians here and once in Philemon. But in verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul says he's a fellow servant who has told Paul about the spiritual health of the Colossian church. And so Paul, who at this point many scholars assume, is in prison chains in Rome, is being ministered to. Epaphras is bringing him food. He's bringing him updates of what's going on in the church around the world. And so what that leads us to conclude, based on everything that we can gather from the Scriptures, is that he is most likely a native of this Colossae. But maybe he's some kind of merchant beforehand. What's assumed is maybe he was visiting... Ephesus, which was, again, a, maybe a closer city to Colossae, the, the book of Ephesians, Paul writes towards that church where Timothy is pastoring. And perhaps Epaphras heard the gospel for the first time at one of Paul's tent revival meetings there. And he was changed by it. And so while he was in that town working, he stayed, and instead of being a merchant or a, a trader or whatever he was being, he was, became trained as a missionary. And so he gets trained as a missionary. He gets sent back to be the pastor and, and church planter for Colossae about 80 miles away. And now he's coming to Paul and saying, 
We've gotten the church started. We're doing all right, but we are facing these pressures and I need your help. The good news of Jesus took root quickly in Colossae. Their numbers were growing rapidly, but things were not easy there. Epaphras has made his way all the way to Rome where Paul is under house arrest. And he's telling him now, there is such increasing pressure from the Gentile people and from the Jewish synagogues in town to get us to mix our faith with some kind of human religious effort and it's, it's tempting our people. Paul, how do we deal with this? Paul, how do we deal with Jesus How do we make Him the center? How how do we avoid the the pitfalls of Jesus plus right food? Jesus plus right celebration? Jesus plus right music? Jesus plus right family or career or community or whatever? And so this is the reason why Paul is writing this letter. So looking at verse 1, he says this. Traditional, ancient greeting. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Timothy, who's helping him with this, our brother. Now, it's easy for us to rush over these, essentially, it's the outside of the envelope of the letter where Paul puts his return address. Usually these first couple verses seem interchangeable throughout these epistles, so we just kind of rush over it. But this is a big deal for the Colossian church. They've never met Paul. They've probably not ever had an apostle in their midst. And here Paul, one of the early leaders of the Christian church throughout the known world, is taking the time to write a personal note of encouragement to them. And he's not doing it alone. He also has Timothy here with him. Epaphras here with him. Again, Timothy, a minister at the church of Ephesus, Epaphras, a minister at the church of Colossae. And what this reminds us of, friends, I think is that God doesn't save us by His will that Paul just writes about so that we can just exist by ourselves and try to get by in our Christian life by ourselves. We need the support of each other. Epaphras went halfway across the world to go to a prison to say, Paul, we need your help. God works His most intense and powerful grace through the community of saints that gather together for worship. That contradicts, here's another aspect in which we've become very religious. Seculosity in our American society. We believe in individualism so much that we won't be conformed to any larger body. We won't listen to what is for the common good. We won't subject ourselves to anything that puts our will lower than the will of the people. That is not how the Christian church conducts itself, though. God saves people together. He puts them together to help one another. We were designed to be together with all the messiness that that brings with it. We're all the conflict, the interpersonal difficulties and relationships that that brings with it. But American Christianity for years has taught 
just get you a Bible and a good devotional and go out on your porch with a cup of coffee and take a picture of it for Facebook or Instagram, and that can be your church. That's not a New Testament vision. That's not even a church history vision for the Christian faith. We have become so hyper-individualized that so much of the New Testament seems baffling to us. The hospitality, the self-sacrifice that goes into putting these Scriptures together even for us to read and be benefited by later. Folks, this reminds us more than anything that we need each other. When, we're, when our life is hard and when it, we're in our own prison chains, when we feel alone or we're out of work or our spouse or our child is sick, when we're just discouraged about life, the last thing that you need is to go in a corner and sulk and be away from people. You need to be with God's church. The body of Jesus for us. Where we're cared for. Where we're loved. Where we're affirmed. Where we're told we're not crazy for feeling sad or tired or sorrowful. We need each other. Which is why in verse 2, Paul is writing as a Christian to other Christians and he calls them to the, the saints. Everybody's a saint. Everybody is a, one that's been set aside not because they're the, 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 the best and the brightest, but because God chooses to work through these specific people with all of their sins and past and everything else. He's chosen to work through these people to bring about His Gospel message to the world. They're not only saints, but they are faithful brothers and sisters. They are just as much in Christ as Him. Paul's an apostle. Jesus confronted him on the road. He was trained personally and spiritually by Jesus. And yet he looks at the church of Colossae, men and women and children he's never met, and says, you are saints and brothers and sisters on equal standing with me and Peter and James and John and everybody else. Paul goes on later even to mention other congregations. A few towns over, Laodicea, Hierapolis, as well as men and women who are involved in leadership in the church, Archippus, Nympha. And the point that he's making is that everybody in the church of Jesus Christ is a crucial part of God's family. Everybody. Everyone. That's why it's also good for us to not be alone because together we're all lifted up. We're all exalted together. And to be outside of that is to be in a place where you can get easily picked off or tempted or fallen away. But when we're together, we get to enjoy in this communal grace together. It's why, Christians, that we pray for other churches and Christians that may be geographically close by to us, but may be a little different than we are. Folks, it is not about our differences. We all have differences. We all have bad theological beliefs. We all have sins in our life. But that is, again, putting us on the pedestal, putting our peculiarities on the pedestal, instead of putting Jesus and His kingdom and His gospel on the pedestal. 
We can be gracious to pray for other Christians, to be kind and compassionate. One of the worst things I think has happened in the evangelical world is we have just, we, we just complain and pick each other apart about every little thing. And now look at us. In, in, a, in a season of life, in, a, in these last few years where it feels like evangelical Christians have needed to come together to, to preach the gospel, to minister to people in their need when they're losing their jobs, when they're on ventilators in a hospital. We're fighting each other when we should be coming together. Yes, this person wears robes when they preach. Yes, this guy has uh, a silly little graphic t-shirt when he preaches. And they, they play pedantic techno music and these people sing choral things from the 1200s. It's silly when we divide about that stuff because we are missing the forest for the trees. Jesus is the center of what we believe. Paul's not the center. Timothy's not the center. Epaphras not. The Colossian letter is not the center. The Ephesian letter is not the center. Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist. None of that. Jesus is the center. We should be emboldened by the way Paul speaks of people he's never met that have their sins and, and flaws, which is why he has to write to them. He calls them saints and brothers and sisters in Christ. He says honestly of himself, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus only by God's will. God's will is what makes Paul an apostle, not his wisdom. Paul was murdering the church, not his intelligence. Paul was reading the Old Testament, not seeing Jesus in it at all. It's only by the will of God that Paul's an apostle. It's only by the will of God that any of us are even Christians. Folks, God has made it so we can be radically, scandalously gracious to one another. Paul opens and closes his letter, people he's never met, by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We have differences, we disagree over stuff, but grace and peace to you from God. Not from Paul, not from the apostles, from God. That's how any of us stand, is by the grace and peace we get from God the Father, secured by Jesus Christ and given to us by the power of the Spirit. And so we're free to be scandalously gracious to people. Not only is is Paul greeting them with this grace, but he's also showing so much gratitude. In verses 3 through 8, Paul begins to show that he's thankful for the Colossians. Now, this may strike us as a little strange. Again, he's never met these people. How could he be thankful for people he's never met? Well, this is a common feature of ancient letter writing, where you say something kind about the person you're writing to, but Paul puts a distinctively Christian spin on it. Because it was typical in those days to use flattery, to say, oh, the most honorable, inestimable neighbor of mine, whose wife is the most beautiful woman in all the land, whose children are handsome and strong, Can I borrow a a cup of milk? 
That's how, that's how you get along in these societies. Through flattery, through, through puff, puffing up somebody's pride. Paul doesn't do that, though. He gives thanks for these people. Not, he doesn't inflate their ego. And he does remind them of their accomplishments, but he does this all again, centering it all on Jesus. He's thankful to what Christ has done in the hearts of these people. He's celebrating their good works. Not things that they did in their own ingenuity, not things that they did in their own wisdom, but he's praising how God has been the one at work through the Colossian people. He's never met these people, and yet he sees and understands from the testimony of his brother Epaphras just how powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ is making an impact in Colossae. How the power of the Spirit is going out through the church there and ministering to the community in need by preaching the gospel, by loving and forgiving and serving even their enemies. And that's why Paul and his colleagues can be truly, sincerely thankful. That's why you may see a ministry that you maybe support financially. There may be other Christians in the world, and you see what they're doing, and you're thankful for them. You never met them. They have no impact in your life personally, but you see what God is doing through them. What great relief when we feel the pressures of this world. We see that we feel like society around us is collapsing, and we've got to do something about it. If we don't take a stand, then nobody will. And you see that God's already at work in ways that are such a relief to you. When you know in your heart, I could be doing more, saying more, doing these things. And then you see Christians across the street that are stepping in in ways that you couldn't. And you're able to be thankful that even in your weakness, God is accommodating and making sure those needs are fulfilled through other people. And so Paul mentions three things in specific he's thankful for in verses 4 and 5. Their faith, their hope, and their love. He says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all, all the saints. Not some of the saints, all the saints. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. That is what a Christian person looks like. Faith in Jesus, love for the other Christians because of the hope of the gospel and the resurrection that we'll one day experience because of Jesus. These three words are so crucial to the life of every Christian, of every church, faith, hope, and love. And if it sounds familiar to you, maybe it's because in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, you've read now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Or maybe you're thinking of Galatians 5, 5 and 6. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Religiosity accomplishes nothing. What matters is faith working through love. Maybe you're thinking of Ephesians 4, 2, and 5, 2 through 5. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. Being patient with one another in love. Making every effort to keep unity of the Spirit. Through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope as your calling. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Or First Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to that day, the day of the Lord, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. As you can see, Paul thinks so much of the Christian life is worked out through these simple virtues lived out. Faith and love and hope. He writes about this all the time. And he writes to different Christians, different churches, different scenarios, to different effects. But the one consistent purpose of talking about faith and love and hope is that these are key indicators of a real, authentic Christian life. If you say you're a Christian and you have no faith in what Jesus is doing, you have no love for one another, and you have no hope that life will ever get better, you may be not a Christian, in fact. Faith and hope and love. Let's break that down, though. First, we see that there is faith. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in Christ Jesus. Simple as that. Not faith in faith. Not faith in being a Baptist. Faith in Jesus. Now, that means that not only do we believe in Jesus, not only do we mentally assent to these gospel stories that we hear, we don't just believe in Jesus as a person, as a teacher, as a guide, or whatever, but this means that we trust and rest in him as a savior. It's a faith that just doesn't say, oh, sure, I believe that, like I believe two plus two is four, or the sky is blue. No, it is putting your identity and trust in him as your savior. Your whole identity, your past you, this present moment, your future, all of that you place in Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, and what he will do for you. That's faith. Not simply passively saying, yeah, sure, I believe that, but actively saying, I'm going to live differently because I believe this to be true. So second, love. Love for who? All the saints. This means that we not only feel affection for other Christians, but that we actively serve and help them. Love is more than emotion, folks. In fact, the English word for love is very frustrating because I can say, um, I love God, I love my wife, but I can also say, I love the old Frankenstein movie, or I love pizza on a Friday night, or sometimes I love playing a video game. Those things are all, it's, the meaning of it is so, how can my love for pizza equal my love for God? You see how that's, it's almost a bad word, but, uh, or not a bad word, but just an insufficient word. Love, so often in the New Testament, which has many more words in the Greek language, is not just a feeling of affection or preference. Love is an action. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. He doesn't mean necessarily to feel warm and fuzzy feelings about people that are mean and abusive to you, but that you choose the action of forgiving and serving, even people that just grate against you in every way. Christians are to love each other. 
Christians are to love all Christians. That's hard to do. There's a lot of Christians I don't like, like personally. I don't respect them. I, I think they have things I find deeply troubling. And remember, by the way, folks, nobody has a perfect theology and not a single one of us has a perfect practice. So just throw those out as qualifiers for who you're going to love. Instead, love and serve Christians that we don't agree with. And here's, here's a simple way that you can do this. By not slandering them. By not gossiping about how they're different. And they, who cares? Leave that up to God. That's not up to you. And also, praying for them. Listening to them. Hey, maybe you can learn something from people in a, a, a tradition that seems wackadoo to you. Some of my friends go to churches and they do things that seem so foreign to me. But their love of Jesus and their desire to preach the gospel and share it with people is so real. It puts me to shame. Maybe I can learn something from them. Maybe it's a gift that I know them and it can help me in my own faith. And above all, always seek to bless them. If you can give them a gift or a kind word, let me, let me tell you something. Nobody in this world and nobody in this church is over-encouraged right now. Nobody is just like, oh man, things are going great for me. Everybody's been so nice to me. I, I just don't need any more of that. In fact, I... I reckon to say it's probably the opposite. We're probably all very under-encouraged. We probably would love for someone to come up and give us a hug and say, I'm praying for you. I know the hard work you put in for your family or your children or your grandchildren or your parents or at work or your neighbor. I know that you're going through it. And I admire you so much. I think we could all use that kind of encouragement, folks. You have so many ways to be a blessing to each other. And some of them are just so simple. Listening, overlooking foibles, and just saying a kind and encouraging word. That's how you can love the saints. I like what John Chrysostom, that famous preacher from 1700 years ago, said. When it comes to Christians, he says this. It is better to err by excess of mercy than by excess of severity. When it comes to Christians, it's better for you to show mercy than for you to show severity. In other words, if you face the option of being too severe with someone or too merciful with your fellow Christian, you'll never regret being too merciful. Do you ever regret when God is too merciful to you? No. Be merciful to each other. Third and finally, we see that not only is there faith, not only is there love in these people, but there's also hope. Hope where? Hope in what? Hope laid up in heaven. This means that they're not simply wishing for heaven. It's not just a fantasy. It's not just a pipe dream. This means that they trust through their faith and their love. God will honor that one day and wipe away every tear they've ever had. He will 
remove every pain, and they will live in resurrected and restored and reconciled bodies with him forever. That will literally happen. Biblical hope is not just daydreaming. Biblical hope is a certainty that the future that God has promised will become our present reality one day. And if I might be so bold, that will be more real to us than this very moment. In other words, because Jesus Christ came into our sinful world to conquer evil and death, and to forgive and to resurrect us. We have real certain hope that although our bodies are wasting away and our relationships are on the fritz, one day all of that will be eternally restored and renewed in God's presence forever. And in verse 6, all of this has come to them. Faith in Jesus, love for the church, and hope of heaven. It's come to them in the form of good news. The good news is so true, so wonderful, so real, that it, when it first came to the Colossian people, they not only heard that news and received it gladly, but it bore real spiritual fruit in their life. It changed who they were. That's how good news affects you. When you hear the gospel and you believe it, when you really receive it, Not only do you have an emotional and interior and spiritual shift, other people around you see that you are different. Not perfect, not consistent, you're different. Because this news has changed you. Think about this, folks, as we wind down today. When you open up the AJC on Sunday mornings and you always see that horrible first headline on page one. This morning it was about churches How are they going to continue? How are churches, bodies of worship, going to continue in the midst of this second huge wave of COVID that we're dealing with? Extremely depressing headline before you're about to go into a church service. When you read that bit of news on a Sunday morning, does it only become news? Does it only become true once you read it and respond to it? In other words, do you, does this news rely on you acknowledging it for it to become real? No. News is news. News is an announcement of a thing that's already happened, whether you had any participation in it or not. And so for us as human beings, the good news of Jesus Christ is not a summons for us to get our act act together and become extra religious. The good news of Jesus Christ is an announcement of what he has already done for us, even if we didn't know it or even if if, if we don't pay attention to it. It's news because it's done. It doesn't rely on you believing it or trusting it or knowing more about it for it to be done or real or true. Jesus has died. Jesus is risen and he will come again independently of how you feel about that. Nothing you can do can change the reality of this supper table before us. You may resist it. You may not partake. But that doesn't make this any less true any less real. You may disbelieve this message and avoid it your entire life, but it doesn't stop the fact that it's an announcement 
that Jesus Christ is king, that he's now the center of all reality. And he's inviting you this very morning, with the terrible week you've had maybe, to come to him. Because he's reconciling all, reconciling all things to himself. And Paul, we get this greeting to the Colossians, a greeting of grace. He's over the moon with gratitude at not just who they are, but the fact that God is making them who they are. And it's transformed these people so thoroughly that they are a people of active faith and love and hope. And Paul's in awe over that. And it's produced faithful ministers like Epaphras, who give their all to serving and loving others and growing in this fruit of the Spirit. And so today, church, as we, as we face uh, a world of seculosity, where everything, everything is an is a invitation for us to be tempted away from Christ and to become extra religious about what kind of phone you have in your house, what kind of car you drive, who, if you vote red or blue, if you volunteer, if you're vegan or, or, or whatever, all this stuff that we put up here as top shelf religious things, that's all wiped away. Come to this table and experience true, free, good news for you. Let's pray. Father, by the grace and peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, make us a people of faith and love and hope. Do this all through the power of your spirit, by the cross of your son, and to the glory of your name forever. Amen.